Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. I was part of what remains today a very classified unit. We were 110 miles behind the line. The so-called um, Iron Curtain was the divider between East and West Germany. We were prepared to go full SOE on them and blow up bridges and take out these trains. James, how are you, brother? Very well. Good morning, Chris. Or good afternoon, where you're at. Hey, the way my head is, it could be morning, evening, nighttime. Well, these days, it doesn't really matter. I'm stuck in the house most of the time anyway with this corona thing going on. Yes. It's, it kind of brings it home, the importance of routine, doesn't it? To... Yeah, indeed. It does give me a lot of time to work on my writing, though. <laughs> To work on your what? My writing. Yes, of course. I think writing and podcasting are the two disciplines that they don't really, you know, they probably flourish under this current, uh, I, I call it a fiasco, but. <laughs> I, I, I am certain it does. I don't have all the technical skills down for this, but uh, I've been participating in a lot more Zooms uh, than in the last year than I have in my entire life, which uh, is quite a few. So. Yeah. Yeah. Zoom. Um, uh, it's become a necessary evil, but I don't want to talk too much about what's going on in the world at the moment because it's too depressing and um, everybody's heard it before. So what I'll do is I'll just lay out the table for our friends at home who are watching or listening. Um, James is a successful author his uh publisher approached and said would we like to have james on the podcast and when i w read this gentleman's cv or resume as i think you say across the water um it's like oh my gosh former u.s elite special forces operated in um let's call it a high security small um small team in Berlin during the Cold War. So Berlin, back in the 70s, um, 80s, was divided down the middle. It was divided down the, or it was divided into sectors after the Second World War. This is my understanding. Um, I think it was three sectors, but the, the two that people are most familiar with is obviously the Soviet sector controlled by Russia and then there was the West controlled or overseen by the Americans well there was the American sector and then there was the British sector I 
I believe it. We, we actually shared, for some strange reason, we shared it with the French because we considered them an ally. Uh, so there was the French sector in the north, the British sector in the middle, and then the American sector. And then on the east side, we had the Russians. Of course, the city of Berlin was 110 miles behind the Iron Curtain, actually right in the middle of East Germany. So in East Berlin, we had probably 10,000 Russians and a few East German secret police, maybe 5,000. So in West Berlin, we were very well prepared to take on those few Russians. We had maybe a total of 20,000 Allied troops. The problem was we were surrounded by about a million Russians and East German soldiers on the outside. So it, um, it was an interesting place to be. Yeah. It just sounds like you guys were way out on a limb, but then that's the nature of special forces, small teams, isn't it? Well, for two schools of thought, we were either stationed in what would have become the world's largest POW camp, or we were well-placed to do behind-the-lines missions once the war started. So uh, I kind of hoped it was going to be the latter. Uh, so that was our mission, was to be behind the lines at the very onset of the war, survive the first 24 hours, and then give the Russians as much grief as we possibly could. We were also supposed to be telling our forces back in West Germany where the Russians were going, where they were coming from, while we were trying to do our best to give them our time. So that's, in a nutshell, that was our mission, was to prepare for the war. Yeah. Let's, let's peel back to the beginning then, James. So where, where did you grow up in, in, the, um, in the United States? Well, if you turn around and look at your map, and right about where it says A of USA, <laughs> yeah, a little right about there, in the Midwest, uh, Nebraska, uh, the wow. start of the Great Plains, um, 100 miles from anywhere. But it, um, it was a Midwestern upbringing. I think you could probably tell from my accent. <laughs> Yeah, um, my gosh, just the name Nebraska is, you know, it, it, it's, it, it just conjures up images of um, what a wonderful, what a wonderful country the United States is with so much, um, you know, frontier history and this kind of thing. Of course, some people would say it's miles and miles of nothing but miles and miles, you know, so a lot of flat land, but it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, you know, we got, we got to do a lot of hunting, uh, so I learned field craft from my father, who was military, uh, went to school there, and then decided I wanted to get out of there as fast as I could, so join the military, actually. And um, what kind of stuff we, were you hunting, James? Because I love all that. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, the big things out there are upland game, uh, pheasants, grouse, uh, the birds, of course, ducks, uh, deer, uh, white-tailed deer, and mule deer, which are slightly larger versions. Those are the big uh, To get anything like caribou or moose, you have to go further north or west, out to Wyoming, Colorado, towards the mountains. But uh, we were flatland, so we had all the flatland game. <laughs> mm. Do you remember um, what rifle you used to use? Um, it was a sorterized M1903 Springfield, which my father brought back from the war. Uh, he also had a Mauser that he got in Germany, <laughs> um, which 
these border eyes. So I'll try to lure, but that didn't do real good against the, the, the pheasants or the, the birds. So anyway, um, so a 30 out six caliber. Mm. The Luger is the quite handy for that stuff. The Luger is the classic German Second World War pistol, isn't it? Yes. Um, very strange operating mechanism. Extremely finely machined, which the Germans found out much to their chagrin when they were in the mud of Russia. So it, it tends not to work well when it gets gummed up, unlike the American 45 or the British um, high power, which is actually Belgian. Mm. But, so. James, we should, um, just for the sake of um, uh, clarity, you, you said you got hit in the throat by shrapnel. Are, are you OK to tell us what happened there? Um, it was a, it was in a an explosion. Uh, a vehicle I was riding in in Somalia rode over an anti tank mine, um, so it went off, destroyed the vehicle, and uh, amongst other things, a piece of shrapnel took uh, hit me in the throat, um, which has affected my vocal cords somewhat. That was that was the most minor of my injuries, believe me, but. Uh, the vehicle ended up on its roof about 30 feet off the road, uh, blew a hole in the ground about five foot deep. It was an anti-tank mine, and we were in a Zuzu trooper doing an advanced recon. And we were on a road that had been described to us as clear or mine-free. Unfortunately, the information was incorrect. We found out later. <laughs> and can you describe to us what what's it? What the hell must it be like to get blown up? I would like to know, but I, yeah, it was funny because we were riding down the road talking about things, and one of the guys was saying, Well, you know, what would happen if we hit a mine? And one of the other guys goes, said, Well, it would go boom. A 30 seconds later, it did. Uh, and it blew the, like I said, it blew the truck apart. Um, it was a Soviet anti tank mine, uh, which is. About 10 pounds of explosive with a steel plate on top of it, which is meant to destroy a tank. And the Zuzu trooper doesn't stand a chance against that. So it, uh, it ruined our day, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, we were way out in front of the American forces um, in Somalia. We were doing advanced reconnaissance, uh, clearing a way down for uh, the 10th Mountain Division to move. Uh, from the coastline down to the southern part of Somalia. And uh, we were in a, a, our third day of the reconnaissance when this happened. Luckily, we had a backup vehicle and um, one of our guys in that vehicle had a radio and was able to call in uh, for medevac. And they flew in helicopters off the coast of Somalia to um, to our location and then took us out to the Navy ships where they were able to do some medical medical work on us. Yeah, I got you. And what, um, was anybody killed? The, the driver, the driver of the vehicle was killed. Um, he was actually a CIA contractor, a paramilitary guy. Um, the other three occupants of the vehicle were Army, uh, me and two other guys. The driver was killed. Uh, I was probably the most severely injured. Traumatic brain injury that showed up later on. Um, my leg was shattered, my right leg. 
made the mistake of riding with my foot up on the transmission of the car. And when the explosion went off, it shattered the tibia and the tibia, uh, which gave the medics a lot of interesting experience working with um, combat injuries, uh, which is another story in of itself. One of the guys was thrown from the vehicle, landed in the middle of the road, dazed, of course, and doesn't realize what happened. And he's going, those bastards left me. <laughs> he didn't realize he'd been thrown from the vehicle when the explosion went off. So, uh, it, it, was, it was partly comedic and partly really dramatic. Uh, I don't remember much of the explosion um, snippets shortly thereafter, um, trying to get out of the vehicle and standing up next to it and having one of the uh, guys tell me it probably would not be a good idea to stand on it and looking down and seeing my leg is, anyway, a lot of fun. And James, you know, we're only as, as this kind of, um, let's just use the term global community or military community, uh, and obviously it's not limited to just the military, but what I'm trying to say is we're only just becoming aware really of PTSD, um, the implications of it, the long-term effects, um, the fact that many of us had it before we even joined the military, those of us that came from uh, challenging childhoods. How, how does somebody get over what you've just described? I mean, two people are dead. You. You, you're clearly very lucky to still be here. Um, did you have to, to like deal with that? Or I, I think I'm incredibly lucky in that regard. Um, I've had physical issues, um, obviously, you know, my leg and uh, traumatic brain injury, but PTSD, not really. Um, unless you count sleeplessness, um, Occasionally, I get anxiety if I'm in a small space, but um, I haven't had the more traumatic episodes that a lot of soldiers suffer. I understand how it can happen, but um, you know, I I can be sympathetic, but I, I haven't experienced that so much myself. Yeah. Okay. I I, I just wanted to ask because um yeah, you seem very. I don't want to use the term level-headed about it. It's a bit of a loaded, but what I meant is you 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 look like you you've dealt with this very well. Well, you know, I had when that when I was blown up, my my military career, um, I had actually had my retirement paperwork in uh, when they said this was 1992. They said, "Hey, uh, we got this thing going on in Somalia. We need people," and I said, "You know." Silly me, I volunteered like I always do um, and ended up going there. So it was interesting because I was in Somalia and actually had an officer fly in. This is after we uh, occupied Mogadishu in December of 1992. An officer flew in and said, hey, um, the chief of staff of the army is really upset because you're in Somalia. I said, why is that? He said, well, we forgot to file your Take, take away your retirement paperwork. You're, a, you're actually officially retired <laughs> as of about two weeks ago. And I said, well, we ought to really. So on the back of a C-130, I signed off the paperwork and redid the oath. So I was back in the military. My <laughs> so gosh. Paperwork. 
And were you with the Rangers or what? What we are going to come back and talk about your how you entered the military. But for the sake of this part of our fascinating conversation, were, were you a Ranger in Mogadishu? No, um, this was prior to the Rangers getting there. We went in before the Marines, before Delta, before the Rangers. I was part of what remains today a very classified unit um, that essentially deals with collecting intelligence uh, for special operations. Um, I think you guys over there have something called 14 Company. You might be yeah. familiar with that. Okay, think of that, and yeah. you're on the right track. Yeah, so military intelligence, for people listening, for 14 Intelligence Group in the United Kingdom is a very small, small, tight-knit unit. Uh, I believe you can volunteer for it from any of the services. So you can be a Royal Marine and say, I want to go 14 in. Back in the day, um, they did a lot of work in Northern Ireland, they, they generally tended to go around undercover, carrying a pistol underneath their jacket. Um, Bernie Plunkett, if people see the, um, the uh, podcast I did with Special Agent Bernie, uh, or Agent Bernie, as I think he was referred to, that's, that's uh, 14 in. Um, just a question, James, because I, I won't have the chance to ask this to anybody probably ever again, but when, when that uh, Black Hawk helicopter went down in Mogadishu, the first guys on the scene from what I, because I, I, I read the book, at least one of them was a, was a U.S. special operative, wasn't it? Well, actually, the, you're on the right track, yes. And I think you're referring to Mark Bowden's book, which is a good book. Um, the two helicopters that were shot down were flown by our Special Operations Aviation Assets, 160th, and they were filled with guys uh, from the Rangers, what was called Task Force Ranger, which was a group of Rangers, along with Delta Force operatives, Special Forces uh, Operational Detachment Delta, who were doing a raid to try to capture one of the warlords when uh, the two helicopters were shot down. So those those two helicopters were filled with special operations. And the people that came out to get them were a combination. Uh, 10th Mountain Division, people that were at the airfield. Uh, there were also Pakistani troops who, who did remarkable things. Um, and of course, more Rangers came out. So it was, it was a mix. and. Quite, quite a day. We found out, we didn't find out, we knew this, but the, the Somalis themselves on the ground were quite capable fighters, especially when you put up about a thousand of them against 100 Americans. There's going to be a lot of chaos, and there was. Mm. I'm just going to grab the book. It's, I think it's the one written by the pilots called In the Company of Heroes. In the Company of Heroes, yeah. Um, excuse me, folks. We will be back. Here we go. Um, yeah, I, I I find some stories in in war in combat. I'm 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 not a big fan of war, <laughs> but when you come across stories like that, I'm just going to try and find the gentleman's name because I think there's a picture in here. Um, yeah, it was this guy. So there was Gary Gordon, 
and Randy Shugart, uh, Delta operators, both of them secured the crash site or they did their best to um, and they were both posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. So they, they, they died under um, all the hail of gunfire that was, that was coming in. They actually, there was even more of a backstory behind that. They were initially denied permission to go in, uh, but they talked to their commanders and, and were actually inserted into the crash sites during the middle of the battle. And then they remained with the crews and protected them for as long as they could. And they were killed in, in the uh, shootout. Yes, you summed it up very well, James. And um, the thing that really struck me was these guys were so professional under fire. It was almost as though they had to just put that to one side that they're being constantly sniped at. Um, and they're just doing their best for the pilot. They're, they're, they're radio, radioing in for reserves. And these two guys are just as cool as mustard. Um, and I just, um, I, I, it reminded me reading this story so much of the special forces guys I've met during my time in the Marines. Um, so like the two SAS guys I shared a room with on my parachute course, they were just like these guys, just so calm, cool, unassuming. They weren't like out for glory or anything, but they were just very professional soldiers. And uh, yeah, that's, that's why I wanted to mention that. It's an amazing group of people that you have to work with. I just wanted to show you this briefly. I actually had the opportunity to go back into Mogadishu 10 years later, uh, 2003. This is a piece of Super 6-1, the helicopter that went down, um, that we recovered there. Um, there are more pieces of that helicopter in the Army Museum now. But the people you work with are amazing. Um, I'm assuming you know, they don't all look like Rambo. There are guys that are built like uh, football or rugby linebackers. But there are also little tiny guys that just have an incredible amount of heart and will uh, to not only survive, but to exceed and to be successful. And these, these are the people you work with on a daily basis. And it's a really a privilege to, to have known them. And it's always sad when you lose one. Yes, very, very much so. Um, it's just that professionalism. It's like these guys take it to a just a whole different level from your sort of infantry level um, service personnel. It's it's almost like there's something wired differently in in wired differently differently in their brains. Um, well, definitely because yeah, I think in the military you have people that come in because it's a job uh, because they want to earn money, and then you have other people that want to be soldiers because it's a calling, and they are called to it and they do it well. It's definitely an interesting group. <laughs> Yes, and of which you you know you, you let's not um, let's not be too humble here, James. You've you've played your part in that that arena, so you. I just tagged along, you know. I, <laughs> I watched everybody else. So you grew up, growing up in Nebraska. You've done the hunting. Was, was your father a service per, father or mother service personnel? 
My mother was a teacher. My father was what was called a livestock broker. Uh, he would be the intermediary between the ranchers and the meatpacking plants. That's sort of gone away now. But um, during World War II, uh, he was actually drafted uh, into the military. He was drafted in 1940 before the Americans came into the and he served as a combat engineer, uh, first as an enlisted man, and then they chose him to go to the officer candidate school. And uh, he was in Germany, uh, served with Patton 12 Corps, and um, was a combat engineer, received the Silver Star in Luxembourg uh, for building a footbridge across the river. He was a platoon leader, and uh, they were under fire from Germans uh, for five hours, and they managed to build this bridge while under fire. He got the Silver Star, um, partially for them, partially for rescuing some people that were wounded in the river. But um, he was my he was my goalpost, my mentor, um, and he encouraged me. Um, didn't tell me I should go into the military, uh, but of my two brothers and I, uh, I was the one that went into the military. Uh, one. One went into more artistic endeavor. He's uh, what we would have called a beatnik in the 60s. He's my oldest brother. And then my middle brother is probably more conservative than I. And he ended up in the FBI. So he had a long career with the FBI and retired a lot. And I was the one that um, I went to college, couldn't really figure out what I was wanting to do, and said, um, at one point, I'm going to join the army. And my father had brought home some brochures about the military, and one of them was a brochure about special forces. Um, the, the men with the funny green hats, very similar to your Royal Marine hat. And um, I went for it there. And, um, 20, 23 years later, I retired. Uh, about three years after I got blown up, I continued to serve once I got put back together. Uh, and then retired there. But that's, that was it in a nutshell. <laughs> How does one join the Green Berets then? Is, do, do you have to join like a, a regular army unit first and then you get you, you asked to be selected? How, how does it work? It's, it's changed through the years. Uh, most of the time, it's been that you come in and got some experience with a unit. Uh, you don't have to be infantry. You don't have to be paratrooper. But they like you to have experience in one field or another. It's always good to have more than one tool at your tool chest. And you volunteer. You take a test, written test, physical test. And then you go to basically a selection, which is four weeks, that tells them whether or not you're going to even be able to keep up the standards for the first part of the training. Uh, so once you go through that assessment and selection, you go into the training. And the training varies anywhere from about, currently, I think it's almost a full year at least. Uh, some of the specialties are a bit longer, like medical. Um, but at any time during that training, you were subject to be uh, returned to your unit, I think is what you guys say. Uh, you can fail and they'll send you back to your unit. It's possible to come back. Some people are injured and they do come back. Uh, some people, they say, uh, no, we don't think you're cut up with this line of work. Mm. Uh, 
essentially you can spend at least a year in training before you get to a unit. I was infantry. I came into the 82nd Airborne. Um, decided very quickly that I did not want to be in the 82nd Airborne, especially in the 1970s during what was called the Volunteer Army. Uh, really bad morale, a lot of issues in the unit post-Vietnam. Uh, so I intended to get into the Special Forces anyway and kind of push the issue. The people in the 82nd were not willing to push me on, but I pushed it to the point where I got some help from Washington and was allowed to take the test. And after I took the test, uh, I was able to come into the training. I trained as a light weapons infantryman, a light weapons leader is what they call it. Um, the initial four-week selection course, um, a five-week five to six week tactical course, about eight weeks learning weapons and tactics, and then a final section that was, I believe, 12 weeks uh, for the uh, final strategic uh, portion of the course. And then I went to one of the, one of the special forces groups. I later trained as a medic, uh, trained in intelligence and operations, and about 10 years into my career, I became a war officer, which is a bit different than the British system. Um, in the American system, basically, a war officer is a, a bargain version of a lieutenant. Uh, you've got a guy that's very, very well technically trained in a certain skill, and the military can pay you less money. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so Special Forces had a Special Forces technician, which was essentially the number two on any one of our 12-man teams. We had a captain in charge, a warrant officer, and then a master sergeant, and under him were nine other enlisted guys, specialists in each of their fields. So, James, just for um, the benefit of people listening, maybe particularly the, the people here in the UK, what is the difference or, or the major difference between, say, your Green Berets, your... Uh, Delta Force, your Rangers, um, I'll say Navy SEALs, but obviously we all know that they're, they're, they're the Navy. They're similar to what we would say, what, what we would, um, or what we have in the UK, which is our special boat service. Um, but yeah, can you explain just the, the, the rough difference between the units and what their roles are? It's... This is always an interesting subject. We kind of look at all these forces under one name, and that's Special Operations Forces. Part of that is because there is one select army unit that's called Special Forces. And unlike in the UK, we spell it with a capital S, capital F. Um, so you have conventional infantry forces. The next step up is Ranger, which is an infantry regiment that parallels, I think, closely what your, it's beyond para, the parachute regiment, and it's in the neighborhood of what you would call the commandos. Very elite, light infantry. Uh, they do a lot of special operations. They work with Delta Force quite a bit, uh, but they are trained to do um, very light infantry, quick raids, strike missions. Then you have special forces, which, it's sort of a nebulous group of people. 
who are trained to do unconventional warfare. And that's everything from direct action or hard target missions to teaching uh, indigenous forces of the third world uh, how to defend their country. In some cases, how to raise an insurgency, um, how to actually work with rebel forces, much like the OSS and SOE did in France during World War II. Uh, so that's, it's a very specialized unit and it has a lot of different missions. Um, and it's made up, each team is made up of medical people, intelligence people, demolition, weapons people. And of course you have to have an officer to, to earn all the money and lead us around. Beyond that is um, Delta Force. It's official title in the army is Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. It's very much a... <laughs> Uh, an elite commando. Uh, it's much like, um, I think what the SAS used to call it was their pagoda troop. Uh, they're very direct action, very close combat counterterrorism type force. They're very specialized in, in those missions and they're very good uh, at that. If you go to the Navy, you've got the SEAL teams, which like you said, are very much like they were uh, special boat troops. And in the SEAL teams, like Special Forces, they have another force which is trained to handle hard darkness, uh, much like Delta. And that's called SEAL Team 6. There are, of course, the other SEAL teams, SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 5 around the world. Um, they're all very capable. Some are more capable in certain aspects of things than others, but um, that's... That's a quick rundown. The Marines also have a special operations uh, group. They're force, uh, force reconnaissance or raiders. Uh, so we've, un unlike the British, we've got a lot of people doing a lot of stuff. You guys are a little bit more small and got back, which is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I've heard the uh, the Boy Scouts that they're tough. They're tougher than everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what Baden-Powell was doing when he made the Boy Scouts, was he was training young men to become soldiers. And so. Yes, it all, it, it, all um, it doesn't surprise me. It all fits together, doesn't it? But if, um, in fact, over here, the, um, the ambassador for the Boy Scouts was a chap called Bear Grylls. Um, let's say, comes from quite a privileged upbringing, this chap climbed Everest when he was very young. Um, he was a member of the Special Air Service. Their, their um, territorial unit, so their part-time unit. And it's interesting to note that they made him an honorary colonel in, in the Royal Marines, right? The Royal Marines has a terrible history for giving people honorary green berries, which is anyone who's earned the berry knows you never give it to anyone, right? It's just going to cause trouble. We do understand it's obviously a recruiting mechanism to give these honorary berries out. It's, it's just to get young men to go and, you know, fight, fight their wars. And so, yeah, Bear Grylls went from uh, being the head of the scouts to now he's got this honorary um, position in the Royal Marines. Um, so there you go. You can join the Boy Scouts and, become a colonel in the go <laughs> straight to colonel in the marines 
Well, you know, John John Wayne was in the Marines and in the Green Berets and was a cowboy, uh, at least on the screen. So it's amazing how people get around. Yeah, I think um, I think Ronald Reagan became so ill in the end, didn't he? He didn't. Re I think he didn't realize he hadn't been he hadn't been in the military. He'd, I don't think he realized he was an actor. There was a there was a, 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 a he was talking in some sort of political circle to someone and he said, yeah, of course, when when I was in the Navy and. Uh, yeah. Shouldn't, uh, some, uh, yeah, some of them go overboard. Yeah. It's funny because when I was writing the history of my unit in Berlin, uh, some of the guys would tell me a story and said, you remember this, right? And I'm thinking hard. I'm going, I'm trying to remember this. And finally, I realized I wasn't there then. <laughs> and they, they kept saying, yes, you were, but I wasn't. So mm. e even people get their stories confused. So. Yeah. So James, to clarify, so you... So you join the 82nd Airborne, a very, very prestigious unit with a fierce fighting history. Um, you then um, volunteered for Special Forces, um, the Green Berets. Is, is that the name of the unit or is it just because they wear the green hat? It's because they wear the funny green hat. Somebody says, you're a Green Beret. I said, no, I'm not. This is a Green Beret and I'm a Special Forces trooper. But, you know, that's... That's what people think. I joined Special Forces, went through the training, graduated, um, and then joined what was known, or still is known, as the 10th Special Forces Group. Um, we have a number of Special Forces groups. The 10th was actually the first unit, and then we had the 77th, and we've got the 5th, and they, they gave them different numbers, just like the 22nd, to confuse the enemy. So, so I, I was with them for a while, and then was asked to go to Berlin, um, which is something I very much wanted to do. Let's talk about that then, because um, just incredible. So were you, you were operating out of the American sector. We were... Based in the American sector, yes, which was the southern part, uh, southwestern part of the city. Um, being in Berlin was very interesting. It was surrounded by 100 miles of, of fence. Um, so it, it was a very compact but very interesting place to live. It's like living in New York City, but really without being able to go out into the countryside. Um, it was a it was a great place to live in Western Berlin. If you ever went over into Eastern Berlin, it was amazing the difference between the two places. One was very much Western European oriented. The other one was like you stepped into a black and white movie all the time. No color, very drab, very Russian, very East German, and it was completely different uh, lifestyle. So we were in the middle of the the night part. Um, I wouldn't say we were living a high life, but it was a very enjoyable experience to be there and to know what we were doing. I mean, you walk down the street and you're in civilian clothes, no knowing what you might have in that, that shoulder bag of yours, and you're working with these Germans who think you're just another person in the city, and, and you have sort of a hurry to tell them, but you can't, obviously. And uh, it was just a very, a very interesting, wonderful place, really, uh, to be serving in the military. 
Mm. Um, like I said, we were preparing for war, hoping it didn't come. But even if even if you hope it doesn't come, you have to be ready for it. So that's that's what we were doing. And the war would be a Soviet invasion of the West. Correct. Um, as I said, we were 110 miles behind the line. The so-called um, Iron Curtain was the divider between East and West Germany, and it also split off uh, all the communist bloc countries, the satellites of Russia, like Czechoslovakia and Hungary, from the Western European countries. Um, and then Berlin was a small diplomatic outpost in the middle of East Germany. Uh, one of the things about Berlin was it was surrounded by a railway network that came from the east and went to the west. And it was one of the main thoroughfares for rail traffic in Europe. And being in Berlin, we were at any one point, maybe 10 kilometers from that rail line. So our target in wartime was basically to get out of the city get next to that rail line and watch the, the trains come by, report back to our people in Europe, or in England, actually, uh, to tell them what was coming their way. At the same time, we were prepared to go full SOE on them and blow up bridges and take out these trains. Um, we had a lot of different targets, anything from uh, Soviet field headquarters to their rocket forces. Um, we expected them to be deploying things like the Scud missiles. Um, and one of our uh, missions was to report on those missiles, and if we could, to sabotage. And sabotaging a missile is actually not that difficult if you have the right equipment. And this is where the 50 caliber sniper rifle was developed. Um, because someone determined that if you punch a hole in a missile, it's not going to work. <laughs> All you have to do is to destroy that, that uh, integrity. So with a 50 caliber, you can set off about a mile and put a hole in a missile and it's toast. So um, in a nutshell, some of the missions that we had, um, on the railway, you would look for bridges, you would look for uh, places where they would be, I forget the name for them, uh, moving trains off uh, rail yards and checkpoints or switch points uh, to move the move the trains, things that were easily sabotaged. And we had an incredibly rich source of intelligence, so we knew where all these things were. And in some cases, we were actually able to go out and look at these targets beforehand, which was an incredible advantage that we had being being in the target area before the war starts. Usually it's the other way around. The war starts and you put people into the target area. We were already there. So that was our event. James, this is amazing. I, I just want to orientate our, our viewers before we go any further. So you were actually based behind the Iron Curtain. Is it, am I understanding this correctly? Correct. And I don't have the map here, but um, the Iron Curtain was the major divider between Western Europe and Egypt. And then Berlin was even further behind inside communist East Germany. Right. And surrounded by a fence so that the West Berliners could not get 
both into East Germany. It was actually meant the other way around. The, the Soviets and the East Germans built the wall around Berlin to keep their people in East Germany because before that they were losing so many people. Yeah, I've got, I've got you. I'm just gonna while we talk, just excuse me, folks. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get up a map of of Germany at the time just for my own, my own. Um, I'm gonna have a look on my computer here. Um, so it all sounds very high risk. Where, where do the Stasi come into all this? What was, what was your relationship with them? Uh, only one word for it, bad. Um, the East Germans and the Russians both uh, wanted to know uh, what they would be up against in case of war. Uh, so obviously they were looking at the uh, British and French and American forces but they also wanted to know what kind of special units were in Berlin. Um, the unit I was in, Special Forces of Berlin, was established in 1956. It wasn't until the early 70s that they actually figured out that there were special forces in Berlin. And they spent a lot of time trying to locate us, figure out where we were, and then in case of war, they had plans to come in and We'll make sure that we were involved. Wow. Have, have James, have you ever seen that wonderful film called um, The Lives of Others? Absolutely. Um, yeah, the Stasi was an amazing, just like the KGB. Yeah, it was like one, one out of every three people were employed by the Stasi, the Ministry for State Security, in one form or another. People reporting on their mothers, their fathers, their children. And they had a very successful security state. There's no other way to put it. Uh, the Russians and the East Germans were probably two of the best. I, the only other ones were, I think, the Albanians, but nobody really cared about them. Yeah, I'm just looking at the map here, James. It, it's hard to understand, isn't it? Because the dividing line goes across the city. But are you saying that your sector, the, the American, the British and the French were were also on the other side of the wall, or am I misunderstanding something? Well, I, I think maybe it's a, a term that, because the Iron Curtain, as I mentioned, is, is the, the wall between West Germany and East Germany. Berlin itself was surrounded by a wall, and then it was split down the middle uh, yeah. by the Soviets were on one side, and the Americans, British, and French were on the other. So we were captive, essentially, in, in West Berlin. There were ways to cross the wall to get outside of it, but for day-to-day German, you couldn't. Wow. So the, when the Stasi came looking for us, they would have to come from East Berlin into West Berlin. They were very well equipped to do it because they could cross the wall. They spoke the language, obviously. They would mix in well with the other Germans. So when they would come across, you know, they're just another German. Um, so not only were they trying to find out what the Americans and Brits were doing, they were trying to find out what the West Berliners were doing. So they had a very extensive spy network. We right. often ran across them. Yeah, I've got you. I'm just, um, again, sorry to our friends at home if I sound like I'm laboring a point. I just, just, I'm just trying to understand. So what, what was the point, James, of having the wall around 
West Berlin, which you think would be the free the free part. Are you saying it's because it was still behind the Iron Curtain? It is. But because West Berlin was controlled by the Allies, if you were an East Berliner, if you were a communist in communist East Germany or communist East Berlin, you could come into West Berlin if you could get there. And once you were there, essentially, you were free of the communists. So it was it was not controlled by the communists at all. Um, and in the 1950s, the East Germans were losing hundreds of people a day because they would come into West Berlin and then travel by aircraft to West Germany, and they would be free of communists. So the, the East Germans built that wall around West Berlin to prevent their own people from escaping the communist state. Right, yes, I'm, I'm seeing it now on the map. It's, um, I didn't realize that. I always thought for some reason Berlin was just divided down the middle. One side was on this side of the Iron Curtain and the other side was on the other. I, I would have thought most English people probably understood it the way I'm describing, but... No, what we're saying is, is that Berlin was completely on the east side of the Iron Curtain. If Berlin, Berlin was very much a microcosm of, of the conflict between the communist east and, and the capitalist west. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, the Russians and the East Germans tried to get the Allies to leave West Berlin. Uh, we called it an outpost of freedom. And that's why they did the Berlin blockade in the late 1940s, was to try to get the Allies to give up and go away. Uh, but they didn't. And for 40 years, West Berlin was really a thorn in the side of uh, the Soviets and the East Germans. It would be like having Liverpool be a Russian city where they could live and operate and, and cause trouble in in, Berlin, uh, in Britain. But, uh, you know, something behind your lines where, where the enemy could operate. And that's essentially what we were to them. We were the enemy. My gosh, what a crazy situation. <laughs> it was. And the Stasi then, so the um, security, the, the secret security service for um, East Berlin, did they have access to West Berlin or did they come in as, as, as undercover agents? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it was fairly difficult for the Allies and for West Germans to go into East Germany or into East Berlin because the communists control it. But to, for the communists to come into West Berlin, all they had to do was hop on a train um, because there was there was train access coming in and the train stations in West Berlin were not controlled. So if a, if a Stasi agent wanted to come look for information, all he had to do was hop on a train, come over, and then blend in with the local. Now, if he got caught with East German identification in West Berlin, then he would be basically either thrown back into East Berlin or tried as a spy if they could. Um, so it was a sort of a unique situation and it made it difficult for the Western people to collect information on the communists, but it was not so difficult for the communists to collect on the, on the West. So you're there, James, you're, you're, um, you're in 
plain plain clothes. You've got a shoulder bag that's got all sorts of um, gadgets and armory inside it. And what what would be a typical day for you? What did you set yourself little missions per day to go and recce stuff, or how did it work? Up until about 1977, 1978, 1979, uh, our mission was oriented towards World War III uh, and our unconventional mission. So on a typical day, you might get up, um, you might go to the firing range to do some small arms firing. Um, you might actually travel to West Germany to do explosive training or to do parachuting. Uh, we would travel out by military aircraft. Uh, but more frequently, we would go out into the city. We were given sectors, which were our areas of responsibility. And we would do reconnaissance along that wall that surrounded the city to find places where we could hide equipment and where we could cross that wall when the war came. Um, we also had the means, not quite as easy, to travel into East Germany and East Berlin to do, do reconnaissance also. So that we would do a reconnaissance within our areas, which was free West Berlin. And then we would travel into the communist East with a bit more difficulty and do reconnaissance over there. Uh, we also practiced working undercover in the city. Uh, it was on a daily basis, every day. Uh, the, your teams were 12-man teams, but in the case of uh, an operation, you would break down into small cells, two- and three-man cells, and we would have to operate independently. So how do you communicate? How do you pass messages? How do you pass uh, mission taskings? We would have to do it either by technical communications, HF radio, VHF radio within the city, or we would do it by what we would call non-technical communications, which is basically the spy trade graph of dead drops, passes of information, brief encounters, so that we could operate in small groups securely, so that if one small group were captured by the enemy, that the rest of the team could operate. And if we needed to, we could come together for a larger operation. So we would practice those half uh, down in the city on a very routine basis where you would go out and do counter surveillance to make sure you weren't were being followed, to uh, serve as a dead drop, to either put a message in or to pull one out. Um, and, and each one of these tasks would, would occupy you for a day at least. So there was a lot of practicing in that, that uh, trade draft and that sort of mission operation. Did you have to do any kind of special driving? Any, any like courses or was it just whoever could drive drove, drove the car? We, we did do uh, special <laughs> training. Some of, the, some of it didn't end so well. Um, we, Tempelhof Airport was the big military airport in, in Berlin. Uh, there were two other uh, civilian airports, but Tempelhof Airport would ha had this very nice long runway, and we would block it off and set up um, warning cones and, and do high speed high speed driving uh, on the airfield. Uh, so we did a lot of a lot of training like that, and we found out the limits of of many of the Volkswagens 
uh, how many G-forces it, it would take before they would flip over on the, on the runway. So we lost quite a few vehicles, but uh, it was good training. And um, I'm just looking at the wonderful photographs you sent me. Um, and what I wanted to ask you, because this is something of a, um, if I had a, a wish list in this world, there's a few things I'd have on it. For some crazy reason, they're all military, which I, well, <laughs> I, I don't know what, well, just give me an idea. Uh, the Rolex Sea Dweller was one of these items on, on my wish list. And I, I've got that one, right? <laughs> but another item would be a samurai katana, right? The, the, those beautiful swords, those incredible works of art that the samurai carried. Um, and I almost had the chance to have one once for, for 50 quid. Oh, silly story. Basically, a friend of mine pulled, I was at my friend's house one night, we were drunk at a party. He said, Chris, <laughs> look at this. He, he reached under the bed and he bought, pulled out this katana and it had been um, militarized. So it was one of the ones where the, um, where the, the um, uh, what, what am I saying? The, the probably someone with a samurai lineage had been fighting for Japan in the war and had given this sword at the surrender, probably Burma, given it to my friend's granddad, who was a, a British officer. And what they used to do with their katanas is they would just change the paraphernalia on it into military paraphernalia. So the blade could be, you know, like a thousand years going back in history. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting diverted here, but it's just it's a fascinating story, James, you know. Um, oh, there we go. There's this I, I actually have a katana like you described downstairs, but I, I won't go running. This is a what I would call a very small version. It's called an Aikucha, and it's a Tato-style blade. But what is interesting is these were carried by the kamikaze pilots. Oh. And I, I imagine that they thought that if they survived the kamikaze raid, that they would have to kill themselves with it. But uh, I'm not sure where this one came from because my impression was all the kamikaze pilots are sitting at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. But this this is one of the, the typically Japanese knives, and I've taken it apart, and it's engraved with with the maker's marks. And one of these days, I actually have to figure out where it came from. So I, I'm with you on collecting strange military things. Yes. So my friend pulls out this sword and part of me, I was just going to say, look, I'll give you 500 pounds for it. Right. It, it was, but I thought there's no, there's no way he'd sell the sword for 500 pounds. They're worth, you know, some of them were worth millions. Right. Um, the next time I saw my friend, I said, have you still got that? You know, would, would, would you take an offer on that samurai sword? He went, nah, sorry, Chris, I sold it. He said, we, we got stuck for cash. So I sold it to my friend for 50 quid. I was like, no. <laughs> Finally, the point I was getting to, James, is the, the third item on my list would be a Huey helicopter. Just the iconic symbol of the Vietnam War, a real workhorse, a very um, almost like a rustic, simple design. Um, but I've seen 
am I right in some of the photos I'm looking at that you you operate at operated out of Huey's? We did. That was before the Blackhawk didn't come in um, until the mid 1980s. Uh, we we had uh, Hueys all over the military, and they had them in Berlin also. Uh, aviation did that. So we use them for uh, practicing helicopter insertion and doing uh, rappelling from them. Uh, we are, we actually trained the Berlin police on how to do rappelling. Uh, the Berlin police had a counterterrorism unit, and and uh, we taught them how to use those those helicopters. Yeah, I'm looking at your pictures now. It just looks absolutely incredible. Just amazing. Um, Sorry, folks, I'm getting carried away here. It's uh, it's just it'd be a dream come true for me to to, to have a ride in a in a Huey. Um, yeah, that's the photo I was looking at. That's um, that's a Huey. Uh, the guy with the funny hair in the background on the uh, right side. Yeah, no. we know that's who that. that is. That guy. That's me. <laughs> we were practicing doing uh, rebelling from helicopters, obviously in uniform. But mm. my gosh, and, and you haven't aged a bit, James. Oh, yeah, uh, I am now a senile old man. So <laughs> it's amazing I can remember any of this. <laughs> hey, join the club. So let's. Um, the, my final question is: Did you have any? kind of close calls when you were there in, in Berlin? Were there any sort of adventures you can tell us about? Did you ever get compromised, this kind of thing? I can think of some other people who got compromised. Uh, doing, a, doing basically a reconnaissance uh, on the wall. There were places that um, within West Berlin, uh, the wall around it was deep within a forest. And we liked those kind of areas because you could go in and you could hide easily in them rather than in the city before you tried to do a wall crossing. Um, well, we were we were doing one of these reconnaissance in the middle of the evening. Uh, well, it was actually fairly late, dark, and... There were three of us, and one of the gentlemen I was with got a bit too close to the wall, which was had bits of barbed wire hanging all around it, and it was dark, and he kind of got tangled up in it, and pulling himself out, this wire, of course, jangles and makes a lot of noise, and... One of the East Germans on the other side, just happened to be fairly close, got really nervous and popped a couple of AK rounds over our heads, um, apparently thinking he was shooting an escapee attempt or something. Luckily, <laughs> um, luckily he was a really poor marksman, <laughs> and, and we were able to withdraw out of the area fairly quickly, but so... Uh, I can't say everybody was quite so lucky on those, but um, that was one of our more interesting evenings. He had to buy beer for a long time anyway. <laughs> I bet. I bet. So, James, let's talk about your um, your illustrious writing career. I see you've one book there called The Horns of the Beast, and 
when I um, the first thing that came into my mind was wasn't that a Zulu? There it is. Wasn't yeah. that as wasn't that a Zulu war, uh, warriors tactic? Yes, that um, that book is kind of very esoteric. Um, it's about um, World War One and one of the first battles in World War One. Um, Germany had uh, several colonies in Africa. One of those colonies was Southwest Africa, which today is Namibia. Uh, and yes. yeah. at the very beginning of the war, 1914, the, the British Empire, of course, was concerned about the Germans. And they gave South Africa a tasking to expel the Germans from Southwest Africa. So that's what that book is about. It's about the South African campaign to eliminate the Germans in that colony. There were some British forces that took part. There was a Rolls-Royce armored car unit, uh, amongst other things. But Horns of the Beast alludes to, as you were saying, the, the Zulu tactic of attacking forward, fixing the enemy with a large force, and then coming around with the horns to attack the flanks of the troops. And the South African general, Bota, was very familiar with us, having fought the, the Zulus um, and a lot of experience with the, the local natives, obviously, when, when uh, they were consolidating their hold on South Africa. He adapted that, took it as one of his favorite tactics. And he used it on several occasions against the Germans in that 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 battle, that campaign. So eventually, uh, it took about six months, but they pushed the Germans out. How did you get an interest to to write a book about the First World War? Um, while I was in Special Forces training, we were exposed to a lot of interesting uh, writers, um, amongst others. Uh, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, writing about um, his operations in the Hijaz that wrote about him. Uh, we also got him exposed to a German general, a German officer by the name of Leto von Forbeck, who worked in East Africa. So while I was posted in Africa, I did some research there. And at one point, at the very end of my career with the CIA, I was in Namibia and I actually visited some of the battlefields and decided that there was no imp there was no information on this campaign or very little other than some contemporary things. I said this would be an interesting thing for me to write about. So I wrote that first book. That was my first military history. Mm -hmm. And T. E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia as his he's he's known. Um I've been to his grave. Um, he's buried in Dorset, which is the south coast of the UK. Um, he's buried in such an old churchyard that there's bits of bones that have all floated up to the surface over the years. It's quite a quite an eye opener, really. Usually, if you see bits of bones in the southwest of England, it, it's a sheep that's died up on our, um, you know, in our highlands here, or it's a, you know maybe a horse that's fallen down and died but yeah. to think that these are actually oh, say again yeah I, I consider i consider lawrence uh, one of the big influences on modern special operations i mean 
he influenced um, a number of your military people, Bagnold, who, who formed the Long Range Desert Group, and Sterling, um, other people like that. But he was also one of the um, men that we studied in our special forces school uh, because he, he had very unique set of rules and guidance on how to work with uh, local indigenous forces. And he was a master of that. Uh, he wasn't a master at counterterrorism or, or sabotage or anything like that. He had things he learned, but he, he knew how to work with the local forces, which is very important in, in that line of work or line of work. Yeah, what kind of strategies did he employ we know some obvious ones don't we i mean he he dressed like the locals he he embedded in himself with them well he all of those things were good learning the language obviously but one of i think the key things that he said that really impressed me was that you have to let the local forces do things by themselves you can show them but when it comes down to actually doing something, you have to let them do it because it's better that they do it imperfectly than you try to do it perfect. And it was through that methodology that, that he raised a formidable Arab force to fight against the Turkish army. Yes. My gosh. It reminds I think me. He just froze. Yeah. I think we're okay. You're freezing a bit, but we can. I'll keep talking until. Oh, there you are. We're back. Yes, I read a similar thing. What was I? Yeah, where did I get cut? Yeah, I was re I was reading recently. Um, oh, it was about the Mujahideen I was reading about, and how so there was a heavy CIA influence there, wasn't there? Lots of uh, workers in that area, and they were saying that um, certain operations which we would consider paramount the mujahideen they weren't in they weren't interested in so things like small commando raids like it, that wasn't their thing they they preferred to you know get on their horses ride in on horseback firing their um you know firing off their uh, rifles and and putting in these big huge kind of kind of attacks and uh yes well, that's that's one of the things that lawrence fought against his superiors about they they very much wanted to take the arab forces and put them against the turks down south in medina during world war one to have them have the arabs attack a fixed position lawrence knew right off the bat that that was a really bad idea the arabs were not used to attacking a fixed position. They were used to doing raids, like you say, ride on their horses, go in, do what they need to do, and get out. They did not want to take casualties because they were few. And he saw that from the beginning, and that's when he started to pull them back to do things that, where he knew that they, they could accomplish the mission without having to worry about losing too many people. Yes, the um, I think the Arabs are probably quite concerned about injuries simply the fact that traditionally they've had a lack of probably a lack of medical facilities or or the journey to a hospital is you know across across a whole desert on on the back of a camel or something it's not 
it's not a, jour a journey that you'd probably survive. Does that sound about yeah, right? Yeah, you're painting a very bleak picture there. Uh, I would not want to ride on a camel if I was not injured, but uh, if I was injured, I definitely wouldn't want to do it. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> I've, um, I think I've been on a camel once in my life, not surprisingly in, in Egypt. Um, and um, yes, talk about your most recent book then, James, if you'd be so kind. I, I would be happy to. Um, this is a question of time and this is, this is fiction based on I, your first-hand experience. It is. Um, I was writing military history enjoying it but one of the problems i have is because of my long career in the military and holding a security clearance i have to submit my books uh for review um so that makes uh, telling certain stories extremely difficult uh because you don't want it to come back with everything cut out um so i i resorted to uh fiction as a way to tell some of those stories and what came out of that is my first uh, attempt, um, what I'm calling uh, the Snake Eater Chronicles. And snake Eaters being a um, nickname for Special Forces, obviously, because we do survival training. But to take some of those stories, put them in a fictional form so that I could tell them um, and put them out there for people's enjoyment. So, um, in my my book about Berlin, my military history book, took 15 months to get through the process of clearing. The fiction book took 12 days. So as long as you can say it's fiction, therefore it can't really have happened. The government is happy. Yes. I'm tempted to make a joke there about the blurred lines between uh, truth and fiction in military memoirs, but... Um... That's the thing, and any anyone in the UK knows knows um, knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember who said it, but um, he said he was an author, and he said something along the lines of, uh, "I remember many things that I have never seen." <laughs> so, yes, and so um, how how well is a question of time doing? It's been released. Has it been released yet? It was released in the United Kingdom, I believe, the end of the month. Um, Casemate Publishers out of Oxford does the um, is the publisher, and they released it there. It's been released in the United States. Um, I think it's doing pretty good. Um, the problem with all these books is public relations and advertising, obviously. So I would recommend <laughs> your viewers look at Amazon or one of your local booksellers and find a question in time. Um, it's a Cold War thriller, brings the Stasi into focus, uh, brings the CIA into the picture, and it tells you a lot of what Special Forces was capable of was doing during the Cold War. Yeah, yeah fictional form. We, we're going to put links for all your books below the podcast on YouTube. Um, so for anybody listening to this, just go to the YouTube video. All of James's links will be there and you can grab a copy of his books. Um, we'll link it, link it to Amazon. 
And the last thing, James, that we were going to talk about was um, it was the Tehran hostages situation, wasn't it? Yes, we were. I, I'm not sure how much we're allowed to to talk about that, but I well, actually, one one of the reasons why that book behind me, Special Forces Berlin, took so long was I, I talk about a lot of these things, and it's one of those funny stories. I actually went down to Special Forces Command to brief this, and my intention was to write a book about Special Forces Berlin, and I briefed the commanding general. And he was very supportive, but there were two historians in there that were shaking their heads in the negative way the entire time while I was talking. And they said, you can't tell this story. I said, why can't I? And they said, it's all classified. I said, well, actually, I kind of understand that. And that's what this pre-publication review part is about. You write the book and you submit it to them and the government takes out the things they don't want people to see. So they were very negative. Um, I wrote the book. As I said, it took 15 months to get through. And actually, very little of it was taken out. And on the Iran mission, um, almost nothing. Uh, but that being said, in 1978-79, the United States was not really fully equipped for counterterrorism. It was a thing that we saw in Europe. You guys with the SAS, of course, were, were very well in uh, getting set up well before us. The Germans had their GSG-9, the French had their units. So we were in the process of setting up units. Well, Berlin in 1975 got tasked with the mission to set up anti-hijacking units uh, because skyjacking was a big thing. So. The unit had been training in special operations and counterterrorism for about three years when the American embassy in Tehran was uh, taken down by what were called students. And the United States began to plan a, a raid, a rescue mission to get them out. So naturally, Delta Force, which had just been formed and certified, was the lead element because they had a lot of people, uh, much larger than our unit. Our unit was about 90 people. of we could field about 40 at any one time as a counter-terrorist force. Delta Force had about 200. So we were mixed with Delta to go into Iran by um, aircraft and then surreptitiously into Tehran to free 60 American hostages out of the American embassy and then three more American hostages that were being held in a, a, another location for a minute. I think we can still hear you. So just keep talking, James, if you would. Delta Force had a 90-man element that was going to take down the American embassy. I'm getting the internet unstable thing a bit, but I will continue. It's okay. So we, we all basically know that the mission failed uh, because the helicopters were not suitable for the mission, basically. Unfortunately, um, they started out with eight helicopters and managed to lose three of them. To continue the mission would have required one more than they had, so they had to abort the mission. It ended up in tragedy. Eight people were killed in the exfiltration when two, two aircraft crashed together accidentally. But the untold part of that story, the only success of that mission 
were the guys that went into Tehran to collect information that would basically form how the rescue was going to happen. Two of those guys came out of Berlin. Uh, they went into Tehran as businessmen. The skills that they learned in Berlin that we used on a daily basis um, to collect information on the embassy, on the airports, uh, on the foreign ministry. They went into Tehran on multiple occasions, came out, and were waiting for the forces on the ground to lead them into the city when the accident happened in Desert One. Um, they were forced to exfiltrate very quickly after that because the Iranians became aware of their presence. But it's an untold story, and I describe it in Special Forces Berlin, but it's one of the more amazing uh, missions that Berlin ever did. My gosh. So how, how did that um, hostage-taking come to a resolution? What, what, what was the ending? What, what did actually happen? The ending was... The actual resolution is up for discussion. Parts of it remain a bit murky. Um, it was the end of our uh, presidential, um, President Carter's term was coming to an end. He was in charge doing the Iran raid. The election took place while all these hostages were being held and Ronald Reagan came in to be the president. Um, after the first raid went down, we were actually planning for a second raid in November during the election time frame, but right after Reagan was elected, the mission was called off and the Iranians released. Um, there's debate on what went back and forth between Iran and the United States on why they decided to release the hostages. One of the arguments or conjectures, conspiracy theories, I think, is that there was money and arms offered up, but that's not true. Uh, I think more to the point is the Iranians expected that Ronald Reagan was going to extract some sort of retribution on them if they did not release them. So it's still up for debate. But Yeah, so the, the story I got was that Reagan's guys, let's say, I'm sure he knew, I'm sure like it's, decision out of his hands, even being president, sold arms to Iran to facilitate the release of the hostages. And then the money they received from Iran was then used to fund the, um, the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. Um, and that's where it all got, got murky because then co cocaine, became in, uh, cocaine became involved, which is always going to you know, create, create problems. Um, and then, of course, when it all came to a head, what's our U.S. Marine guy that took the hit? What, what, what was his name? He, he, they put it all on... Um, Ollie North. Ollie North, that's yes. it. Yes, this, this handsome, charismatic Marine. He took the blame for all of that side of it. And was there a guy called Ricky Free, Freeway Ross? I think his name was... took. He took the hit for the drug side of it. Um, There's a lot of intermingling of conspiracy theories here. So, yes. It's, it's, yeah. I yes. think the only thing good that came out of the Iran raid was that's when we stood up our Special Operations Command, which was a, which is a joint command that takes control of all the Special Operations Forces. 
one of the big problems we, we had during the Iran raid was everyone wanted to get involved. And that's why we ended up using Navy helicopters and initially Navy pilots. But the helicopters were not up to the mix. What would have been better was to use Air Force, which were designed for that, specifically for that mission. And that was actually things that changed. Had we done the second mission, the Air Force would have come in, the Marines and the Navy would have been pushed out, and it would have been a joint Army Air Force. But yeah, it, it didn't happen. But what came out of that was our United States Special Operations Command and the Joint Special Operations Command, which are the two units that do a lot of the work now in Afghanistan and for Denver. And your folks, of course, were working alongside us. Task Force Black, amongst others. So. Yes, we've heard about Task Force Black. And you mentioned being a, a CIA. Were you a, an operative or, or an asset? How, how does that work? I, I think this nomenclature is always a big thing in, in these things. So if you say asset, that means you're actually a hired agent or thigh. Um, I was an operations officer, what we also call a case officer, who are the guys that go out and find these assets to do missions for us. So I was looking for people who could collect the information that the United States government wanted to know. And I worked overseas in a couple of countries, several, um, trying, to, trying to make those things um, uh, and then towards the end of my career, I got more and more involved in uh, the counterterrorism aspects. The CIA got very much pulled into counterterrorism um, following uh, the Nairobi bombings, um, Nairobi and Dar es Salaam embassy bombings in 1998. Um, so uh, on one hand, we were collecting strategic information from governments. And on the other hand, we were trying to do counterterrorism stuff. Find the people who blew up the American embassy, which we did. Mm. Do you have any views on the um, the false flag um, kind of allegations that are made when these kind of events go off? I think I think the Oklahoma bomb bombing was. Um, I, I'm I don't know the right words, but that was the one that was that was alleged. It was Timothy McVeigh, wasn't it? And he was he was executed for that, and then. After the fact, you get all these, let's just say, people come out of the woodwork and point out the what seem to many people to be implausibilities in these these kind of official narratives. Well, I, th I think you know we see we see the consequences of that today. I mean, what happened on January sixth was the result of many conspiracy theories, uh, all untrue. Um, about the Democrats stealing the election. Um, the same thing there, Timothy McVeigh was proven uh, well beyond the doubt to have carried out the Oklahoma City bombing. He was upset because of the way the um, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms people took down the Branch Davidian compound before that. I'm going deeper into the story, but he, he was a right-winger, uh, upset with the government and decided to get his revenge. And his revenge was placing a ammonium nitrate and fuel oil bomb outside 
the uh, federal building and exploded, killing not only government employees, but mothers and children. And um, he was arrested shortly thereafter. Uh, the evidence was clear and compelling that he did carry this out along with an assistant. And that has led, nevertheless, to conspiracy theories about the government doing this on their own and for some unknown reason why, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's a problem we're going to see more and more now, I think, with social media and the deep fake kind of uh, things that are putting out, people are putting out. It's much easier to spread a rumor and false news than it is to counter it. And it's a, it's a propaganda technique that has been used well by the Russians and the Chinese for, for years. And I think we're just slowly catching on to the implications of this. And I think that there are some very serious implications for society in general of how, how, this, how this carries on in the future. Yes, I, um, I don't think there's ever been a more serious time really to, to try to, for society to need, needle these things out because the, the truth that we were told growing up People are just starting to realize that's there's just so many flaws and and, and 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 holes in it. And now it's really, you know, this whole control agenda is it's affecting our children. They're, they're not going to have the lives that we had. Then they're not allowed to travel anymore. And 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 um, they I just think the world's it's probably always been a very dark place. I just think many of us didn't realize how kind of dark it is until now. And um, I feel sorry for young people that, that they're not going to have the, the, the future that you and I have enjoyed, James, you know, where we could just hop on a plane and travel where we want. And, and um, you know, yeah. Ah, anyway, I think I said at the beginning, that's a, another, um, you know, a whole another ke kettle of fish again, but, um i think yeah. it's just things are never things are never as they seem and i think uh for those of us that love freedom we, we we've always got to use that as our bottom dollar you know um because otherwise it means the sacrifice that that you've made james and i've made and um many of our colleagues have made the ultimate sacrifice haven't they and they're no longer here absolutely you know uh, i think we have to be very careful because there are forces, official forces in the governments that, that want to control things. There are also many private corporations and organizations that want to have their influence. So I think privacy and freedom are under attack from multiple locations. Some days I wish we didn't have the cell phone and internet. It makes things easier, but it also makes things more fragile. Yeah, I think you've just hit the nail on right on the head. And on that note, James, I just would like to <laughs> thank thank you so much. Um, what an absolutely fascinating chat. This is stuff I would never get the chance in my life to speak to anybody about. And um, I, I just feel honoured that you've come on the podcast to share your incredible history with us. Well, Chris, I, it was, it's a pleasure for me to share it. I mean, it's the history of 
a lot of guys that I worked with, I like to say that there were 800 people that, that were that served in Special Forces Berlin over the 35 years that it existed. So it's their story. And then, of course, I was a small part of that. But it's my pleasure to share it with you. And, and hopefully your listeners will get a bit of a history out of it, at least from my point of view. <laughs> yep. So friends at home, uh, um, to you guys... James's book, the links are going to be below. Um, as he said, sometimes the best things are written as fiction. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So get involved and um, get yourselves on Amazon and pick them up. James, just stay on the line so I can thank you properly. Friends at home, much love to you all. Please look after yourself in these uh, awkward times. Um, if you can like and subscribe, that's really going to help the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.